Gracias. So, hi everybody. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I am in the office of my new friend, Padre Roman Velázquez, and we're going to record this in English because that's really your academic language, even though your mother tongue, shall we say, is Spanish, right, Padre? Yes. <laughs> and, and you're originally from Puerto Rico, but you've been in London. You've had hay London hay fever in June. How many times now? Oh, I can think? count about... 13? About 13, 15, 15 times, because <laughs> yes. we're both suffering at the moment. My eyes tend to stream and everything runs in the wrong place. Um, but here we are, you're in sociology here at City University, uh, but you've written about lots of topics, not just conventional sociological ones. So I thought we might just talk about some of those things, but also what you're up to now, what's interesting you. Now. Yeah, yeah. I've been at City for 14 years. Um, prior to that, I was three years in the University of Puerto Rico, where where I did some of my undergraduate studies there. Um, and now, well, I've been doing a lot of work with um, Latin American sort of um, groups in London, and in particular, mm. at the moment, what I'm um, researching is on um, a big regeneration scheme in London, in the Elephant and Castle area, which is quite centrally located transport-wise but has been for many years marginalised economically. Um, and there's a big regeneration scheme going on, part of the big London plan. It's in South London, very poor. Um, Lots of Colombians moved there in the yes. 70s, am I right? Yes, there's a lot of um, uh, Colombians, Bolivians, there's a lot of the Latin American um, sort of groups established there for a long time, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and I am dealing with, um, a, rather than the sort of residential aspect of the regeneration, I'm dealing with the businesses because it's there where they um, started establishing back in the 1990s. Um, at the beginning of the 1990s, I was doing my PhD here in, in, in London, and it was on salsa music in London. But of course, I needed to know why salsa and where were the Latin Americans, um, which was uh, a, a weird, I always question why did I make that connection? But of course, there was obvious reasons, but there was no need for me to, in a way, make that connection because the salsa scene in London was, n or, or part of it, was not all necessarily related to Latin Americans. Mm. But I did want to say, well, why don't I find Latin Americans in these clubs? Why can't I find clubs that are run by Latin Americans? They did exist, but there was on the margins. But it took me to Elephant and Castle shopping center at the time mm -hmm. when the first shops were opening um, and nowadays what I find is and I go back there it's because their their existence is a threat that when I first started there were about 20 shops there probably in the area or so um, now there are over 70 in the area um, they're very small retails a lot of them are in arches sublet and so on um, and they're at risk of, of losing that space, partly because it's been earmarked as a, as a sort of a regeneration area. There is a lot of investment by developers. There's a lot of interest by the council as well. Um, and, and by the way, for those listening, regeneration mm -hmm. in Britain, as in the United States, means destruction of small businesses and traditional or immigrant communities mm, yes. in favour of corporate capital. Yeah. Just in case anybody wondered what was being regenerated. Yes, and it's, <laughs> it, it deals to issues of gentrification, for example, how the area is changing and so on. And so I am sort of researching into into that. Mm. Um, what have they achieved so far? Also, the negotiating process, how is happening? Are they included? There's a big attempt by the government to say ethnic minorities have to be incorporated in the transformation of pl places where they well not really um and and sort of examining the role of the state that sort of fluctuating you know role of the state between the retailers and the population there and corporate capital and of course it always sidelines one way or the other rather <laughs> than the other um so those that that is basically what i'm doing sort of um documenting part of me wants to document what's happening and other parts of me also wants to be quite critical about what's happening and engage with debates about small ethnic retail and how they're evaporating really from from most areas in London that have been um, through this big regeneration sort of schemes and at the moment it's these areas what what the normal plan now is trying to do or the new London plan is trying to do is they earmark certain regions that have potential because of their transport links or certain assets of the area and elephant and castle couldn't be solved by anything else apart from location you know zone one and it's has very good transport links and land value 
but property value not. And zone one refers to the London public transport yes, system. Yes, that's it. Yeah. And this is the closest to the centre of London. Mm. We're in zone one as we speak yes. in Patria's office because she's a zone one gal. Now there's a wonderful irony here in the very name of the place you're studying, isn't there? Which yeah. people probably won't know. Elephant and Castle. Castle. Where this term came from. You see it on the front of the bus. Do you know where it came from? Or have you ever Someone it? says it's to do with Elefante, uh, yeah. La Infanta de Castilla. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. and, yeah. um, and the Cockneys couldn't say that. So this was this place that was, was named after a working class Cockney version of the name of a princess yes. from Spain. At the time when the Spanish and British empires were trying every now and then morganatically not to have a massive war, right? Yes. I mean, this is the so. sort of irony, and now it becomes a place where Latinos, Latinas come to live in London. Yeah, no? and, and make their yeah livelihoods there, the yeah. businesses are there. Um, there's quite a big established business sort of cluster there. Right. Um, but it's organic sense. rather than planned. In this yeah, it's been all developed way. because it was cheap yeah. and they're in the cheapest areas of the shopping centre, for example. Yeah. They were in the middle of the corridor. Some of them are actually now in the more sort of stabled um, sites um, or in the arches. And it's interesting because it's the arches under the railway system mm. um, and they hire an arch and sub divide it and sublet to different um And is that, is that under the arches area, as it were, an informal sector of the economy, or is that actually just as formal as the stores in the shopping mall? No, it's formal in the sense of in which it's been. Yeah, it's 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 a formal business um, set up mm. for that with the proper planning and mm -hmm. and right. and all these sort right. of. Yeah, and it exists as 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 sort of a lot of these arches in England has had the tradition of being like workshops or art mm. places or um, warehouses and so on. So there is that tradition of hiring these spaces um, and, and gain money out of, I suppose. Right. Um, and what sorts of businesses space. are folks running? Is it clothing, food and so on? Yeah, everything. Dentist, clothing, uh -huh. food. A lot of it is food and food um, sort of for retail. There are um, some slightly further away, there are radio stations for example media outlets um, there's also distributors along um, there and in Druid Street as well further down in London Bridge um, but mainly that the, the, there is a lot of like clothing um, beauty salons and um, food basically there's also um, travel agency um, money exchange um, issues there as well. Remittances and things like Remittances, that. Remittances, oh. there's a jeweller there, there's a dentist mm. there. So you can um, really get everything you need. Everything you that. need, yeah. And, and and the main thing I think I'm worried now is that, um, well, rents have already increased, they've said it. Um, they have been really excluded from this. And another aspect that I've been doing today with them, um, which has developed out of the research, it's um, through an organisation called Elephant Amenity Network, which is a local um, <laughs> that deals with issues about local environment and, and, and amenity issues in, in the relation to Elephant and Castle. They're very active and they're very well connected with council and, and, and the local area. Um, and they knew I was doing this research and they wanted to incorporate also Latin Americans within their, 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 their um, remit. Um, and that was really helpful because we were trying to do things to respond to planning documents to recognise that there is a Latin American cluster there and that the council should do more to get them to stay there. And so um, they wanted to develop what is called a neighbourhood plan. These are um, in, in response to what the developers were doing. Community groups can do that. It's a long process, but they're trying to do it. So I developed with them, with uh, together with the retailers and gaining their, their insight, a sort of um, neighbourhood plan vision for the Latin American sort of sector mm. within mm. their general plans for the area. Um, and that, that it's sort of in progress, it's a very slow process, mm. but it seems an achievement in the sense in which when we took and, you know, we were working with students who, who, who knew how to do the planning and the vision, you know, get that into a nice little um, project. Um, and when I went back to the retailer and said, this is what we've done, would you like anything else changed, does this work, does this not, things that we took from there they felt that they were listened to. But of course, this is a neighbourhood plan. It's not what the council is wanting to do. Um, and I think it's that lack of, 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 
of council involvement um, that they, they want. Now this is an interesting qu citizenship question for me in part mm. because it suggests one of the downsides to the absence of minoritization by which I mean if you think about the United States which we both know mm. all too well uh, minority status is of course a deep problem for people in the way they get marginalized mm. but it also brings with it certain rights or entitlements or forms of recognition in addition to oppression, stereotyping and exclusion. Mm. And it seems to me one of the issues theoretically for Latin Americans in Britain is that even though Britain was so important in the region in the 19th century, most of Latin America was not part of the British Empire. And so there's not the special claim on the state that's been effectively made here uh, by South Asians, by Africans, and by others descended from those groups, and the same by Australians and Canadians amongst the white settler colonies, that mm. there's actually a difficulty there simply in being recognised as a group. Is yes. that right, or have I got that Yes, wrong? no, there is a big campaign um, to recognise them as an, as an ethnic group, basically, mm. the Latin American mm. recognition campaign. Um, and, and, and there is also the, the Ibero-American um, group as well. Um, and there is a bit of a... What's happening is they know that they need recognition in order to, to get some claims and rights in certain ways. Mm -hmm. um, and they're not getting that. It's a very small group compared to other immigrant groups. But, you know, there's a study by Michael Wayne in, in Queen University. And she says, well, mm. it's as big as the Polish. And it's, you know, it, it's, it's a group that it's big. And also there's a, uh, uh, the numbers, the official numbers, do not register a lot of um, immigrants who have always stayed, who are not sort of with the proper documentation or legally in the country and so on. Seems so there's, yeah. see, and, and, and then what we have is a, is a bigger problem, right, mm -hmm. um, for, mm -hmm. for people who are suffering quite a lot of other stigma attached to that, yep. non-confidence, and it makes them invisible. And one of the things about the Latin American retailers is that because they're illegal, because they become visible through that, and mm -hmm. what... Um, Michael Wayne was saying, actually, there's a lot of professional people here as well who are legal, who came through the legal process and so on. And, and, and the community is becoming stronger and it's no longer invisible in that sense, right? Mm -hmm. They have gained recognition by Southwark Council recently to be in the ethnic monitoring forms of the borough. But it hasn't happened London-wide, which is what some groups are, 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 are sort of... Um, fighting for mm, or, or sure. yeah. um, so basically th that's the stage we are at at the moment and there's a big division within um, some groups in the Latin American community that think oh we should just call it Ibero-American include the Spanish the Portuguese and, and so on uh, because it makes us stronger as a group so there's a, a, a tension there and some people say no the Latin Americans have different problems and different sort of um, needs to European citizens who might share language but don't share the same immigration Problems yeah, so and they've got a different status, and they were also the conquerors, <laughs> the invaders, <laughs> lest we forget. Oh, no. um, yeah. do, do you have a take on that intellectually, politically, personally? Do you have a stake either way in that debate? I think, well, I, I would go with the Latin American. Um, mm. I think trying to mm. branch out. The, the Latin America as a region, you know, it's very different countries we're not talking about one country mm. to get a unified thing as latin america had been you know history as well and i do think politically that is what makes more sense you know to get recognitions as latin americans here mm. despite you know regardless of whether we are a small group or not um and i think that is where the strengths should sort of lie mm. i guess what you get with the spanish and the portuguese is eu membership european union membership mm. which gives them extra privileges and of course long traditions of banking connections here finance connections and the professions uh, nowadays of course as you and i both know if we go to a bar or a coffee shop we may well be served by a primary school teacher or a lawyer from Spain who's 27 and has come here because that's the only way she can get a, get job, a job as yeah. a barista, right? So it's interesting. There's a proletarianization of the Spanish in yes. London, you know, but it's still very different from the But there's a big uh, uh, debate now as well about the impact of this for Latin American communities yep. in, right. in certain ways. Also because a lot of the Latin Americans who have regularized, regularized themselves in relation to Spain have come here and they have better rights for working here mm. than the mm. ones who, who have 
been living in, in the UK seen papeles, right? So basically mm, there is a, it's yeah. a big debate now here about how many of those Latin Americans who regularize themselves in Spain are coming and mm. it, it, what does that mean for the, the Latin Americans who are here? And that's been interesting for you if you don't mind my asking about being a Puerto Ricanio because of course the status of um, Puerto Ricans in the United States is so ambivalent and so different in that for those people who are listeners who are not from the United States or Latin America, Puerto Ricans are democratically excluded essentially from the United States political process. You guys have a representative in the uh, House of Representatives who can't really vote, uh, rather like DC. Um, but of course you actually have citizenship rights in terms of immigration. So that's one thing I'd like to ask about. Another thing would be of course, I'm wondering whether one could draw any parallels between the South Bronx and Elephant and Castle. Well, I lived as a child in South Bronx, like any other Puerto Rican. <laughs> South Bronx is in New York City, by the way, in case you thought yeah, everybody I went from the... I was in public the, school number 52, I think it was 52, 62, something. PS 52. Or 62, I'm not sure, yeah. I've got the photo somewhere. So. <laughs> from, PS to P, from PR to PS, right? Yes, um, yeah, that's it. Um, which PS stands for public school, um, which has a very different meaning in the UK, public school. Um, yeah, so I would... The first thing, yeah, being a Puerto Rican is quite interesting because there is always, you know, Puerto Rican is uh, 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 a geographical piece of land, right? Mm. That is a country, but it's not a country. It's always mm. ambivalent politically. Mm. It's an Estado Libre Asociado, which if you translate any of those three words, it, it, it gets you nowhere. And I always <laughs> you put feel... together, it's even more confusing. Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I feel that Puerto Rico is always um, neither here or there and always pulling to the sides and I suppose part of your identity is also that you're yeah. you're you're always ambivalent you're always um neither here or there when I came to the UK it was quite interesting because I had a very American accent to start with you're kidding yes not now not now no. <laughs> now it's all mixed muy ingles, um, no pero muy ingles pero muy muy ingles no well <laughs> the English won't say that <laughs> they would say what part are you <laughs> no but yeah. tienes el uh, Sí, pero no es americano ya en el acento. No, okay. no. no, para nada. No. It, I've lost the American accent, but because English is not my first accent, I can just... No, pero yeah, tienes okay. el glottal stop. Yeah. What I want to say. Yeah, of no. the Americans. No, no. Here. Yeah, so yeah. that's what you know. Yeah, that's it, yeah. yeah. Well, and so, so when I came to the UK, it was interesting because in Puerto Rico, identifying yourself as a Latin American is quite a political statement as well. So mm -hmm. I was Latin American, I organized a Congress of Latin American Students in Communication. And I, you know, the, the university has had a big internationalization agenda and the internationalization agenda meant breaching out to Latin American countries when I was studying there under a particular rectorate there. And so that was quite interesting in a way. Mm -hmm. So I come to the UK to do my PhD and I suddenly realized that I'm a Caribbean, you know, mm. <laughs> and I'm a Caribbean person. And that I, I, I adopted that shift in the identity. And I said, I am Latin American, but I'm also Caribbean. And Caribbean here has a very different connotation to the Caribbean I am for the same mm. reasons that you said about um, not having the colonial history um, mm. uh, with Puerto, you know, the Caribbean and Puerto Rico is the Spanish, the colonial ties and the root. Um, so identifying myself as a Caribbean was also quite important for me, saying I'm a Caribbean person. And people say, well, you're not black enough or, you know, so those were things that were quite, I wanted to challenge the English way of thinking as well that, yeah, Caribbean is it's quite mixed you know it's mixed it's racially mixed it's People not just speak Dutch yeah they speak Spanish French. They speak French they speak some indigenous yeah. languages and no. so that was quite sort of interesting yeah. Um, yeah. and um, in terms of the parallel um, uh, and of course my work has always been defined by the Latin Americans um, um, in London I did try to shift at some point but um, do something sort of to do different sort of research with the night consumption and the electricity introduction which stemmed from having done my PhD I went to work in Puerto Rico so I developed some of the themes rather um, than the Latin American sort of migration because I was in Puerto Rico um, and then when I came back to the UK I tried to continue those themes which were to do with the night time space um, and consumption mm, and I mm. was trying to deal with technology and the introduction of electricity at night and how that changed perceptions 
of the city as a space of consumption, basically. Um, that didn't lead me anywhere with a paper I've never published or so. Um, but then I went back to the Elephant and Castle because there was a lot going on there. But yeah, Elephant and Castle, I'm not sure whether it's similar, but in, in certain ways it reminds me... It, it, in some aspects of South Bronx as I was growing up, because there was a lot of, um, at the time I was in South Bronx, what I remember were um, buildings being burnt, for example, there was a big uh, political thing about, yeah, eradicating people from the areas. There was a lot of commotion about um, buildings being burnt, people having to move out of the area. And I remember living with a lot of fear there in, in that sense. I remember the building and I went not long ago with, oh well, probably 10 years ago, with my uncle, where was it? Because I still remember mm -hmm. the, the building was um, the backyard basically of the, of the school and the schoolyard. And then my parents decided to move to Philadelphia. So I lived um, they realized, you know, that that's the first stop, I suppose, of every Puerto Rican because they know someone and so on. And then they moved to Philadelphia and I did um, first, second and third grade or years one, two oh, and three in oh. Philadelphia. Yeah. Right. Because mm -hmm. I mean, for people who don't know, the South Bronx is arguably, amongst many other things, the origin of rap mm -hmm. and much hip hop. And a lot of it is Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, it's not just African Americans, mm -hmm. and a lot of it's in Spanish, yeah. because these were the places that were so drastically underfunded by mm -hmm. cuts, particularly to arts budgets, music budgets, and so on, in systems like PS52 or 62, whichever <laughs> one you were in, yeah. before going to Philadelphia. Yeah. And so I'm just wondering about that sense of an enclave that one gets, or historically one gets with South Bronx, as you say, a place where Puerto Ricans go as their first port of call. Yeah. and. Mm -hmm. Uh, this place. One of the things that interests me about Elephant and Castle, I think I'm right in saying that on Sundays there's a big gym there and it becomes, I don't know if it's Pentecostal, but some kind of Protestant church space for Latin Americans. Ah, that's really interesting because that has been the first space that um, has been um, the first victim really of the um, regeneration scheme. They were in a, in a leisure centre and that leisure centre attracted, they hired the hall for Sundays, I think it was, and they um, attracted quite a lot of people in there, and it was a sort of Protestant-type church. Mm -hmm. And what happened was that, um, that that site is no longer there, photos prior to and after, um, and, uh, the site being destroyed. And I think only yesterday in one of these sites, it was announced that there's a big tower now, 34 one the elephant is going to be called um so i just think yeah it's one elephant that's going to remind latin americans um that their space have already gone so they've been the first victims that church had to leave last year i think it was in june was the last year they had to go and now i believe the church is segregated to different parts because they haven't found a big venue again right. to do it but yeah they used to and the, the, um and that has been the first victim of, of the regeneration, completely displaced, very little month's notice to go and find a yeah. new place. Yeah, much as I dislike charismatic Protestantism and what it does in Latin America, that's not good. But the interesting <laughs> thing as well was that it meant that there was a captive audience for all the businesses as well. So, that, you know, one... when I, you I remember one Sunday morning in Medellin, <laughs> uh, walking into a big supermarket, um, at the opening and of course it's blessed every morning and shoppers arrive before opening time to pray to Jesus and mm. it's, it's nothing to do with Catholicism it's all about yeah. this kind of Protestantism because Protestantism brings us the wealth of choice mm -hmm. because it's the religion of capital yeah. and you can't buy until you've worshipped or at least stood around while others do it so I'm standing around watching hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people behaving as they would in the United States Mm. in a Protestant space, but in a, every shopping mall, that's what happens, yeah. you know. So it's interesting, I think, that these things do come together. Mm. All right, can we go back to, I guess, what was your doctorate and, and your book mm. and, and hone in a bit on that, on the question of salsa mm -hmm. and salsa here and what salsa means. You know, for some people it's a source, <laughs> for some people it's a dance, mm. and it has very special connotations. Yeah, and for some people, salsa's music. <laughs> right, and sorry, it's a musical genre. Yeah, yes, really. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it's been sort of globalized as a dance form, but it's it's yeah. it really is the music, if, if anything. But it, you're not you can't separate none of them. I think it's part of all of that. Yeah, when I first came, well, I came with sort of three different things in in mind, and um, 
the one on salsa was something related to something I'd done on my MA in Puerto Rico. And um, my then supervisor happened to be in London for, for a month or so. And I said, well, I'm still debating which project should I go for? And he said, you're going to spend the rest of your life, he didn't know, in Puerto Rico. Why would you like to go back to do research there? Do research in London, just oh. stay here. And that's what was the definitive moment of um, a scholar there who has written on salsa a lot, um, Angel Quintero Rivera, Chuco. They call him Chuco Quintero. And, Chuco um, Quintero. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, he's a great writer, yeah. So anyway, he was the one who told me, stay in London, don't take the year of research to leave because you're going to go back to Puerto Rico and, and write there for the rest of your life, of course, three years after I, <laughs> I came back here. But never mind. Um, but it was the best advice ever, actually, because um, there was nothing done about salsa. And it was interesting to see how salsa was sort of appropriated in a way in, in London salsa dance scene here. It, and how it started, because it just the craze for salsa, how it started with business people, introducing certain clubs, a theme, th then the whole thing develops, you need DJs, you need the music, you need the food, you're right, and then sort of a whole network of clubs, and the way it started was very much like that, three or four entrepreneurs opening it at the same time, they get together to create a craze, so it was all very business-like, there were um, other um, clubs that were in church halls, and you hire for the night, and so on, um, that were run by Latin Americans, for example. There was also like nights in certain places run mm -hmm. by some of these people. Um, and, and that was interesting in itself because um, there was a... Well, I did... From that, I did um, things about the embodiment of the music, you know, how people learn to interpret the music with the body, um, but also how it's played is very different to how... Um, I don't know, rock, you know, the, the instruments are performed in a very different way as well. So it's all about how this idea of Latinness was performed through the body, um, through salsa and sort of it was embodied. So it's about issues of identity um, in that sense. Um, and I also did a bit, um, because place, um, space, time, identity have been always the core of my sort of research, really, um, issues with the with um so theoretically those are the issues i'm dealing with so i was also dealing with where i tried to map where the clubs were and um i came up across a sort of cultural geographer which i love her work which is doreen marcy and she introduced me to this idea of the geographies of power a concept or the power geometries so i tried to map out in those um where were these clubs, who were they run by, and then talk about those geographies of power. And so it was a more complicated picture than just saying, oh, all the ones that are run by Latin America's and of South London and the ones that are not are in the centre of London. And that was quite interesting because it wasn't quite like that. There was a boat in the River Thames run by a Colombian. So I just in front of the Houses of Parliament, raided when there were footballs and Colombians were playing and so on. So why was he there? You know, so I was asking questions like that. Why is um, La Casa Latinoamericana in Kilburn, for example, where when most of the Latin Americans are not living around there at the time? So I was trying to understand those locations and why they ended up and why, why it was. So I, I sort of connect with a lot of those sort of geographic power and place and issues. And, and, and mentioning her, haven't you interviewed her? Yes, I did. Yes, Marcy. I did. I did interview during Marcy and mm. um, yeah, I'm in contact where, with her. Where can people find that interview? Uh, the Do interview you know? was published in um, a Latin American Journal. It is available yeah. electronically. Um, it's it's um, Signe Pensamiento. Signe Pensamiento. We also interviewed Jennifer Robinson, which is also another South African sort of um, geographer. Um, and in her case, she gave me and, and, and a colleague from Argentina a lot to work on ordinary citizens, or ordinary cities, she call it, uh, mm. ordinary cities. And I'd sort of try and bring some of that to my work on on Elephant and Castle as well. You know, why do mm. we need to aspire? For example, Elephant and Castle is made 
to aspire to 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 a place in the global city and it has to redefine itself in relation to you know so so you have elephant and castle has to justify within southern southern london london a global city and so elephant and castle has to redefine so those are some of the things of the layers of locality that um robinson has also given me and following marcy as well um and that is quite um to me well, that's where the theoretical bit comes in in certain ways because it also gives me ways of understanding how elephant and castle has to redefine itself in relation to this idea of the global city and so i say why do we have to aspire to one generic future right and why can't we reinvent ways of thinking spaces and places differently mm -hmm. and how listening to these voices properly not just a ticking box exercise of accountability can make a difference in how cities are developed. One of the frustrating things in Latin America is the, I don't know about wholesale, but powerful import of Richard Florida ideas about regeneration, reconstruction of cities and so on. And the tendency to fetishize there, the latest, you know, whether it's the Ford Foundation in the 50s and 60s or neoclassical economics displacing Marxism in the 70s and 80s or creative cities, creative industries in the 21st century just import these ideas from other countries, not just the United States, yeah. and uh, assume that they work because they're written about in English by powerful white men. Yeah. I, it happens again and again. But there's a whole market for um, placemaking, yeah. um, city branding, nation brand, for example, and it's a whole, and it's based on a lot of, you know, the there's a uh, organization called Project for Public Spaces, which have done great things in New York, and they do markets, and they follow more or less um, white um, vision of transforming places, and they said places so that they can be used for the people. They've been accused a bit of doing the capitalization of society in a way, you know, these plazas and that. And yes, you know, and, and here there's a big dilemma because even with Elephant and Castle, when you go there, you said, yes, people aspire to different things, right? People aspire to nice places to live, to nice places to hang out, a park, a cafe, whatever that nice means to you. You want somewhere where you feel safe, someone that you walk and you feel that it's a nice environment to walk in. But at the same time, you don't want that at the cost of the poor, the immigrant, right? So how you deal with those contradictions I don't know you know the, they can't see both belonging together and I, I, my question is can these two forms of global capital mm. the immigrant that comes and settles you know it's a form of global capital minor as it is and the global corporation can they and this is something that has been given said by Suki as well in relation to New York can they survive together and this is a question she asked can these two forms of global capital survive can we imagine futures and cities in this way? Um, and that isn't, at the moment, it's models, you know, architects, everyone works under the same sort of umbrella of, of, of a generic formula for places. Oh, absolutely. And often trying to do away with the organic forms of inhabitants mm. that exist. Just getting back to your, your book for a moment, so uh, what's it called, the Salsa book? The Making of Latin London it was. The yes. Making of Modest Title. Yeah, the Making, making of, of Latin, Latin London, London Salsa and, Music, Place and Identity. Yeah. And it's I think 1999. 1999, because it was a result of my PhD thesis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So folks can get hold of that. And yeah. I actually looked it up and saw that it's available through quite a lot of online booksellers. Yeah, um, probably um, you have to get it secondhand cheap um, because if not, it's quite expensive. It's hardback. <laughs> <laughs> so a friend of mine said, oh, I got it for £8 through a secondhand internet way site. So go. that's the way to go. go. Yeah. Uh, now, in the almost 15 years since, has a yeah. lot changed in terms of salsa and its place in Latin life in London? Well, the, the, the salsa craze has died a bit in certain ways, but it's still there because it is a dance form. It, it, it has also gone to other cities. Um, there are musicians, there are bands, but also there is a newer generation. And what is quite interesting is that there is something developing as well. The migration has, um, has settled more from other countries like Bolivia um, they, and um, Peru and there's a lot of Andean influence mm. and um, so it's quite interesting the way in which um, there's like new sounds coming it's not necessarily salsa salsa there's a bit of the reggaeton in there there's new influences into here um, and there's a sort of particularly sort of um, Andean 
sound to the music as well um, that I find quite interesting and some of the bands um, that are now are also it would be nice to retake this in a way because some of the bands are um, sort of highlighting their Andean heritage mm -hmm. um, as well um, Andean is that the way yeah, you yeah. say in English yeah, yeah. Um, and so that I find interesting I haven't followed it up fully like research wise yeah. but those are trends I see that are interesting are and happening. reggaeton reggaeton is, is quite popular here I <laughs> don't follow it up yeah, like, <laughs> 96.3 reggaeton no, no. I had a friend from Colombia and he kept uh, um, um, uh, asking me it wasn't reggaeton I think it was um, Calle 13 uh, uh -huh. and she was saying I can't understand the words I can't understand <laughs> the words you need to, to because she thought it was Puerto Rican um sort of uh, words that were not translated into and I think the same happens with reggaeton here as well but in her case it was interesting because it was Colombian um, and she was singing she says a wiper why is a wiper she, no, she was saying, talking in Spanish to me. So, mm. ¿qué es un wiper? Y yo, a wiper, a wiper del carro, el que te sí, limpia sí, el cristal. Sí, sí. No, no. And what's going con, con Well, cornflakes, you know. And so she couldn't understand these no, anglicisms that have been... In, in, in the US, the reggaeton radio stations co yeah. do code switching all the time. Yes, that's it. So, yeah. buenos días, how are you, patria? Mm, Estamos that. here, muy happy together. Uh, juntos allá, ta, 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 you know, all the time. Hay palabras que han sido adoptadas como, sí, sí, como español, como conflay, wipe. Eh, Spanglish. Spanglish, Spanglish pero también sort of el code switching. Switching. ¿no? Entre, well, las categorías, los yeah. lenguajes, todo eso. I think the code yeah. switching happens less here. Uh -huh. mm. um, the interesting thing is also the lyrics of the music here. Um, uh, I, I was sort of joking when I went to concert um, a couple of months ago with some of my Sort of Latin friends here, and I was saying, well, it's changed from yuca ñame to choclo, and because it reflected <laughs> the influence you see of the new sort of migration that is coming. When I did the research at the beginning of the 1990s, um, it was um, a particular type of migration, and after the um, sort of 2000, there's a different sort of migration, and that is what you're seeing. Those sounds are very different. different. I, I've got a friend and the here lyrics. Uh, who's a Dominican. <laughs> I don't think there'd be too many Puerto Ricans and Dominicans in London. No. But his story about coming, and I'd love for you to tell me how you'd make sense of this. He's, he's a working class guy. And he moved with his wife and children to Spain in search of work. Ugh. Bottom for that of the economy. So he now sends remesas to his wife and children in, I think, southern Spain. And he's been here for six months. He's worked every single day, apart from one Sunday, two weeks ago, he has a couple of different jobs. Uh, so what's the, I don't know how you would explain that kind of migration, but what, what are the push and pull factors? Why are Peruvians and Bolivians, why are Andeans coming here mm. now in greater numbers? And what's the relationship between Spain and here? Is that relevant to this, as in Oscar's case, my friend's case, or not so much? I think there's a lot of um, questions being asked now, in particular because of that migration from 2000. Um, at the beginning of the 70s when a lot of the Latin Americans were coming in some of them were coming with work permits there was a big scheme to attract there was a change in immigration regulations in the UK that allowed people who had no connection with the British Empire basically to apply for work permits this was done to sort of limit the number of people coming from the colonies right in that sense what they didn't realize was that they opened up a song um, another uh, another loophole for other other countries. That's how Latin Americans come. There's a big thing there. So they were coming with work permits to work in the service industry and so on. Some were not necessarily, but also there was Pinochet's, um, you know, some were escaping dictatorships. The Chileans were really strong politically at that time as well. Um, so there were, uh, you, there were a lot of political unrest in the region as well. So that you, you have both things, economic migration, au pairs were also from Colombia coming at that time. That was um, a system that was closed later in the late 80s, I believe. So au pairs and domesticas. See, right? they came to supposedly yeah. learn English, but they're basically not, and they, 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 they were working with families in a way. Um, and so... Um, uh, the, those were some of the, the sort of um, things stimulating migration in the 70s. A change in immigration rules, rules here, um, uh, political unrest in the region and political um, 
things in, 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 in Latin America. Um, and certain conditions that allow women to, to come as au pairs, and it was women from Colombia in particular who were um, uh, taking on board a lot of the au pair. Um, and then what's happened is that there's been loads of immigration changes, more tightening and so on, but there's also a big um, migration also was happening with Spain because the, the, I don't understand fully the immigration regulations there. What I know is that if you can claim that a grandparent was, you could come through that route. And some people still had the grandparents link with Spain. Puerto Rico lost that because by 1898, when Puerto Rico passes, everyone has to become Puerto Rican citizen. So Puerto Rico doesn't have that, but a lot of Latin American countries still have that strong link where people did not want to give that citizenship sure. and away. you've got lots of people whose grandparents fled Spain during the Civil War. Yes. Lots and lots. Yeah. I mean, I think 60,000 60, went to yeah. Mexico, for example. Some yeah. amazing number of Republicans yeah. fleeing the fascists. Yeah, and I have people in Puerto Rico in similar ways. Again, yeah. they can go to Spain yeah. and so on. So yeah. yes, there, there is that aspect there as well. Um, so so what's happened is those people have been regularized or some of those people have been regularized in Spain and that is causing that sort of migration that instead of and it's interesting the roots and it, you know I think um, uh, Jessica was saying this is like a cyclical sort of route. This is our, our um, friend colleague Jessica Reyes who's a professor in uh, California. Yeah whereby you know the Dominicans um, main um, um, standard um, route in a way was to come to um, Puerto Rico, the stretch between Dominican Republic and the west coast of Puerto Rico is nothing. Come there, um, and a lot of them are um, not necessarily um, legal, uh, documented as uh, mm. um, migrants. Um, but there's a route into American citizenship, for example. For them, and uh, mm. for those who don't know, Dominican Republic shares the same geographical area in a sense as Haiti, yeah. and there's also a strong slave legacy or heritage component to many people in Puerto Rico, in Haiti, in República Dominicana. No? República Dominicana is one of the other countries that speak Spanish in the Caribbean yeah. as yeah. well, so there's links, and there's always been links between the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico. Um, so what's happened is that there's a lot of this also happening, that there is people start discovering that the US and Puerto Rico is not the only route mm. that has mm. been exhausted and people are exploring other areas Australia for example and so mm. people are exploring mm. other areas um, and Spain became one of those because there is a, a, a connection there with language and um, colonial ties um, what happens then is that because of the economic situation there then they, they need to move and they move usually to other countries And but why are the Peruvians and the Bolivians now? I'm not sure, really. That's an interesting one. Uh, I mean, I'm wondering if it was hard for Peruvians during the Sendero Luminoso issues. Just like it's hard for Colombians to go to lots of places now. Mm. It's really hard for Colombians to get into Mexico unless they have a US visa, which in itself is hard to get. You know, some Colombians couldn't get into the recent conference in Dublin. Mm. But Colombians didn't have the same problems coming here. They don't have the same problems going to Australia. It's one of the reasons they go there, so they can learn English. There are some, yeah. if you're ever there, there's some really fun Spanish, in inverted commas, bars that are really run yeah, by Colombians because that's where they've gone to study English. They'd rather go to the US, mm. but they can get in easily there. Mm. So it's interesting to try to work, you know, I'm wondering with the Peruvians, with the end of the Shining Paths in Dero Luminoso, or effective end, yeah. as a major terrorist movement and the other movements there under control, um, whether yeah. that makes it easier to get visas or permits, who knows? I don't know. And for example, the Bolivians, it's quite interesting. To know, it will be interesting to know why in particular and I think a lot of the ones that are coming are from rural Bolivia as well so they're not necessarily from the capital either so it, it will be interesting to to know more about that yeah. which I don't really yeah. know I have interviewed a few people and they talk about you know the main reasons are certainly economic reasons to come yes. and they talk through the routes that they take to get here and so on um, I'm not sure of any conflict or unrest in that sense but you never know whether they you know, are one of the things i found when i was living in mexico was that people there that i met who were you know working class all thought britain had fantastic weather <laughs> they are here you look outside the, the window. Here we are in July. It's no. fucking freezing. It's not and totally grey. It's not. Yeah. Yeah, it's not um, and that everybody was wealthy. You know, this was very yeah. much the understanding. And the third thing they knew was that there was football. 
Yeah. You know? But also the they had a positive attitude compared to their attitude to the United States. Yeah. And also sometimes they're like chains, you know, someone comes and then there happens to be some sort of job link there. Mm. So things keep coming as a chain as well or people who were here earlier on and, and I think there's a lot of that and and there's a lot of migrant talk in places like which is the the next place to go where you can make a lot of money and so on mm. and so there's a lot of movement as well in relation to that speculating where they can because a lot of these are migrants who are economic migrants um, some are political refugees or um, mm. asylum seekers and so on but um, the, 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 the economic migrants do tend to move in relation of course there's always the issues of families and so on but they tend to move in relation to where they think yeah and uh, some of the conversations i've had is like Mm. oh japan or australia right and those were at some points the places that people were thinking about yeah no i know a brazilian who's moving here actually but who went to live in Japan for about eight years working in a factory mm. and working class background and so on. I think yeah. there's quite a lot. Oh, there was a, a, a play not long ago um, in Southwark Playhouse here in, in London by a Mexican woman. Um, I can't remember her name now, but the play was um, Juana in a Million, Juana in a Million, and it was all about, um, you know, the everyday wor- working coming into, arriving into a country as an economic migrant and and all the sort of um, bad deals you get whereby you're not paid because they know that you're irregular and so on. So there's a lot of that going on in, in with the Latin American population here. here. There's a lot of um, people who come here initially with a tourist visa and then they stay and then they go within a week. You know, I found people cleaning sometimes in, 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 in near Liverpool Street, for example, I've only here been a week and I've been placed already here. And there's a lot of people who then start a job at the month when they're supposedly to be paid, they're not paid, you know, sort of exploited really. And there's a lot of exploitation um, about their regularity. They have no rights, for example, for, so they, they even though they have rights, like I've discovered recently, um, they're scared of asking for anything because they're irregular. Sort of. And what would your recommendation be in policy terms for that? I mean, so many countries are trying to deal with this at the moment. In the United States, we're seeing so-called immigration reform, reform right now. I mean, as a sociologist, communicologist, Puerto Rican, immigrant, resident, you know, all those things put together, how should we, we deal with this issue of citizenship, mm. residency and so forth? I think it's a, it's a very difficult call, to, call in a way for governments um, because you know they rationalise it economically, they rationalise it this way. None of the figures necessarily you know will match their claims but you, you manipulate figures mm. To, mm. To, to support your arguments. Uh, as an academic right uh, as a as a person as an individual i think you gain more from these individuals regularizing them than keeping them um out of the loop um these are very vulnerable populations who can't have a bank account and address and they are really invisible and um they're only accountable to their families and that's it if this person disappears there's nothing else to protect this person they become stateless because they're not in this in, in their countries either and i believe that none of them necessarily want to cheat the system you know a lot of people are hard workers they work they and they will contribute with their taxes at the moment they can't even do that or they, so it's like i feel that if you regularize migrants they they will contribute more to the country than they are allowed to at the moment. They will engage politically. A lot of the Latin American population here is well-formed, educated, it's politically active, some of them, you know. And there is a lot of um, energy out there, and positive energy um, and, and, and enterprises being built on that basis. So I think, yeah, as, as, as an academic, I would think there's nothing there to lose, if anything, to gain. No, I, I couldn't agree more, and yeah. I think it's... a real tragedy the way in yeah. which people are rendered illegal because if yeah. you I mean particularly in a place like the United States and Britain in the case of the United States here's this place where these people all invaded and they you know 
committed a genocide as best they could, yeah. and now claim that others are trying to get in there without papers. What papers did they have? Absolutely zero. Yeah. Their families never had any. And, and these people are trapped as well, aren't they? They're trapped in a cycle. That is, um... So, And then in the case of Britain, there's that slogan that a lot of, I think it might have been Caribbean folks, used to use, which was, we are here because you were there. Yeah. So it's fine to invade and enslave half the world, but if some part of that world, or any other, wants to come and be where you are, then it's just disgusting. I mean, it is, it is utterly extraordinary, but it's also a populist versus elite liberal problem. Mm. On the one hand, you and I are talking in favour of working class, very marginalised, very industrious mm. people. A lot of the audience opposed to what we would be saying, a lot of the group would be working class, maybe industrious people mm. who are on the run and frightened economically and so retreat into a particular white enclave of quasi-privilege, but it's within the working class. And that's one of the tragedies, I think, one of the challenges of immigration reform is to take even the good neoliberal aspects of immigration, mm. which can be very positive, I think. Mm. Everything else is awful. But open markets in labour mm. I'm completely in favour of. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, you know, to take some of those arguments and explain them effectively to local working people is, I think, really one of the great challenges of our, is, of our yeah. day. And I wonder about the role of culture in that. I wonder about being able to say, listen to salsa, <laughs> or look at these fruits and vegetables. Oh, the food, yeah, they love it. When there's a new Peruvian restaurant open in Soho, you know, and everyone is raving about it. You see reviews in all the newspapers. And yes, there is, there is a richness to, to London as a multicultural city that everyone raves about. But if you close their doors, then you're not going to have, you know, if you're not going to give visas to the Cuban um, ballet to come here, then they're not going to have it, right? They're, they're not going to have these things. And I think there was an, an issue recently about that, about visas for artists and how a lot of the Latin American people, artists in particular Cubans, can't get visas. And, 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 and it's like a tragedy for the creative city hub, right? So how do you promote that? if you don't have a system mm. that encourages that in the first place. Not just for the artists that are coming to get a visa, but also for the ones who are here who could thrive, but you don't give them that chance to thrive and no, opportunities. Absolutely. Because they're in the, you know, they can't. Basically. Now we've been focused very much on London, mm. but if you think about a lot of say South Asian immigrants and their families in Britain, they've moved to many other places. Mm. You know, one thinks of Birmingham or Leicester, Bradford and so forth, the same with people of African descent. Um, are there other parts of the UK where Latin Americans have chosen to settle? There mm. are in other parts, but because it is such a small, um, I would have to look at you know uh, statistics, but it's a small yeah. part. But there are places like Brighton, uh -huh. there, there are quite a few, and there are quite a few salsa clubs there as well. Um, and there's like places, um, for some reason, some Scottish um, places as well in Scotland. Um, and I think the reason why Scotland is to do with um, port of arrival being Ireland because it was seen as an easier way to get through and then get the boat rather than uh -huh. so oh, there was something to do with, with that um, and I think there's cities in like Manchester there's few students actually doing research on um, that I know of now on, uh, for example, women and migration of Colombians or particular groups in other cities um, that are not London. It's starting to, to, yeah. One of the things I found frustrating in my year here, and I'm mm -hmm. leaving, uh, going back to LA for other reasons, but one of the things I found that's frustrating is the lack of significance of Latin America in British academic and public and cultural life. Yeah. Um, I suppose, yeah, that's been my struggle to find my place in the UK. It would have been easier to fit in the, the United States, I think, easier for me in, in certain ways as a woman, Puerto Rican. Probably not. 
particularly within the Latino studies, but there is a Latino, there's a Puerto Rican center, there's a, you know, they are institutionalized um, as academic subjects and so on. Mm. The, the thing here is it's quite, uh, the British education system I find sometimes um, wants to modernize, but it hangs on to those British, you know, um, sort of traditions. And so Latin American studies becomes Latin American studies, right? So it's development, it's economic development, it's um, urban development. Actually, the urban doesn't actually come too much. But it's about development issues, it's about economics, it's about politics, it's a lot about politics, uh, politics within the, within the region. So it's not about diasporas and migration. That seems to have been, and I think that the problem I found here was that didn't quite fit the Latin American studies here um, but that perception is starting to change I think the study of um, Mackin Wayne and um, a few other academics who are starting to take on board the subject um, and a few students and PhD thesis finished you know I, when I started there were there was one book on Chilean families um, in London uh, or in the UK actually it was um, after the Pinochet. And that was the one academic source there was. There wasn't mm. anything. Mm. So now that I can tell you, actually, I can list 40 easily, at least, sources. It tells you there is a lot of interest now. And also, there's a lot of scope there for doing comparative work. Latin Americans are in every city that you can imagine in the world. So you could think that there is a lot of scope there to do something about um, Latin Americans outside of the United States. Um, Latin Americans abroad, that's the title of... Um, um, my next book, Latin American sort of cultural spaces abroad. Oh, yeah. could you tell us a little bit? Of, we've just got four four minutes or so left. Could you tell us a little bit about this next project? Yeah, well, that's a book that will draw on some of the research I'm doing in 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 um, in Elephant and Castle. But it's about how Latin Americans are constructing um, spaces abroad. Abroad. We, we wanted it sort of London really because it's where we're working but the publishers are abroad but it gave us a, a, an insight that this could be actually a bigger project in that sense so basically what we're doing is um, see how Latin America created these uh, cultural spaces Nothing, no one has dealt with it there's a lot of migration data there um, but there isn't about how they also um, engage with cultural media. So there's a chapter on media, carnivals, that um, my colleague uh, Livia Vijasana, she's um, co-authoring it with me, um, and she's working on those parts, and I'm collaborating on the media section as well. Um, she's on research on that, and, and Latin American organisations, for example, as well. Um, so we're taking some themes um, on transnationalism, diaspora's identity, place, and, and sort of linking through all that. Wow, that's exciting. And is that still underway? Or yeah, it, we just have signed the contract with Palgrave. It's due next summer, so oh, that's, that's exciting. the project. Exciting. For when I leave City. <laughs> now, we should conclude with that. So, like yeah. me, you are leaving City yeah. University here in London. Yeah, I am leaving. I'm not leaving to another academic institution. So, I'm sort of trying to sort of work on this book. And then probably, I do have a sort of associate fellows and research associate in other institutions in the UK or in London. And the idea is to sort of um, give myself some time to see if I can do, extend the work I've been doing with the Latin American retailers and community organisations. So basically, it's to see if I can branch out there and do something, um, but also strengthen some of the publications. So we're working on both things um, and see if, um, yeah, I can move out of academia, I think. Yeah, become an independent researcher. But become more independent researcher, yeah, that's what I'm looking into, mm. yeah, and helping, doing more research and helping these organisations with some of the research they need and so on. Now, without asking you about, about City itself, my sense is that British acad academia, to the extent that I understand and experience it, is intensely bureaucratised and that this gets in the way of a lot of what would be considered academic freedom in the United States. So much energy seems to be dedicated to justifying who you are and what you're doing, so little to actually doing things here. I'm just I'm literally bowled over. But that's not a comment on our employer, whom of course we love. It's a comment on the system here, which seems to be very yeah, much that way. I, I come from Puerto Rico, being in the University of Puerto Rico system, which was over bureaucratic. Was it? Yeah. So I come to City 99, the times were very different to how they are now. And um, I was very formal because in Puerto Rico everything had to be in writing and everything was very formalised, letters, memos and so on. 
Um, so we inherited the West of the Spanish and the English. So we, I mean, and the and the U.S. So I, you know, Puerto Rico was really bureaucratic. So coming here, suddenly I wrote a memo, yes, to someone. I will take this PhD student and so on. And she says, wow, why were you so formal? You know, writing a memo. So I, of course. So I relaxed a bit. The next time I, someone writes a sticky note, could you? I reply back in the sticky note. Right. But those times have obviously really changed. And yeah, I think there's. A big change in academia and the British system. They're trying to become more like the American, but they don't want to leave the British way. So they're like halfway between and they are in a trans, I think it's a transformation stage um, and they're neither th here or there. The system was very elite. Uh, education system is becoming a massive education system and they want to keep the elite pastoral supervision one-to-one -one system and you don't have the resources to do that and you need to change. So one thing has to give way and they don't want to give way yet, mm. but they want to adopt the massive education system. Product. I think that's encapsulated perfectly what I've witnessed in the last 12 months. Mm. Well, Patria, thank you so much for this conversation. I've learned a great deal. I've really enjoyed it. Do stay in touch. And when you're doing further work on behalf of the elephant community of London, <laughs> you know, let's join together again for another podcast yeah yeah thanks thank you so much